What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout. I am the CMO of W2O Group and the host of the What to Know podcast. I'm sitting here in Austin, Texas at 600 Congress at WeWorks. And this is really fun because I'm sitting with an old friend who's done some amazing things along the lines. His official name is William Hurley, but he is known to many as just Whirly. That was his early day Unix name. It's his Twitter name. Uh, thank you for sitting down and doing this today, Whirly. Thanks for having me. It's good to be uh, seeing you and hanging out with you again. Well, it's fun to do this, right? there. Um, I've talked to a few people who have grown up in the industry, people like David Armano and uh, Jeremiah Ouyang and Brian Solis. And there are a lot of folks that started in that world of digital technology, social back in the mid 2000s. Uh, a lot have sort of fallen by the wayside and are living in their parents' basements. And then there are people like you that have gone on to great success. So um, I want to give your official title. <clears throat> and we did a little prepping on this because we needed to make sure that we are being clear. Um, you're currently the chair of the IEEE Quantum Computing Standards Workshop. Worley was kind enough to write this on his board for me. Um, he blogs at superposition.com. He's also, for anyone that uh, doesn't know, he's a movie producer. He's a serial entrepreneur. He's written several books, and we're going to talk a little bit about some upcoming book projects, which are very cool. And the main reason um, that he sort of got my attention again as a potential guest is you're keynoting at the 2018 South by Southwest, which is not an insignificant opportunity. Given as many years as you and I have been going to Southwest, uh, South by Southwest, as many years as we like in the early days, everybody's trying to sneak in or do something ancillary to it. Uh, you know, it is an incredible honor and something I am super excited about to be one of the keynotes there. Um, especially, you know, uh, Brian, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Jenkins, who's a producer at Moonlight, everybody else they have. It's like a really amazing year. And I'm super excited to be uh, including the a talk on quantum computing uh, in the Convergence keynote. Well, it's going to be awesome, and, and the good news is I will absolutely make a point of coming and seeing it. I do want to talk about your early days. <clears throat> you've done a lot for Austin. You've done a lot for the um, open source movement. Um, you've started a number of companies yourself. I think the two biggest ones that most people know about are Chaotic Moon, uh, which got acquired by uh, Accenture, and then Goldman Sachs, which got acquired by, I'm sorry, um, Honest no, Dollar, like which it got acquired. That way. Yeah. Goldman Sachs was acquired by Honest Dollar. <laughs> exactly. Honest Dollar, which got acquired by um, Goldman Sachs. And uh, the first was a huge mobile play. The second one was uh, financial services technology for retirement in the B2B market, if I'm getting that correct. But let's talk a little bit about early days and sort of, you know, Bar Camp, which I know is one of the things that you were well known for. And um, how did you get into technology and what was that sort of driver that sort of steered you down this path? So I got into technology uh, kind of by mistake, right? So I was a touring musician in a band. I got in a bad accident. The band moved on without me. I used the insurance money to build a digital studio, which back in the day was like you know, amazing. And this is like pre-internet days for most people so like 89 90 91 is when i was doing this type of stuff so no spotify or pandora yeah, yeah. or none of, SoundCloud. None, of this, none of this stuff you kids have um but uh that led me to having to correct the midi simpty timing uh, when i was doing music for cds and that led to having to learn how to program in a now archaic scripting language called lingo 
which was in Macromind Director, which became Macromind became Macromedia, and of course then became Adobe. Uh, they got acquired by Adobe, but uh, that was kind of what got me into it. And in uh, 1993, 94 timeframe, I went to work at Apple Computer because the 89 earthquake, they moved all of their inside sales and finance support and stuff to Austin because it's a disaster-free zone, and they were hiring technical support people. So I got a job there. Uh, about six months later, I got promoted to do internet training uh, and, and set all of that up. And then uh, I ended up in R&D there before I left, um, you know, in uh, kind of like late 97. But that was kind of my, my entryway. The bar camp thing is really interesting because with bar camp, um, you know, I didn't start bar camp Austin. I like to make sure everybody gets credit for what they've done. There was a guy named Raven Zachary, awesome, awesome individual. And he actually invited me to kind of co-do it with them. Uh, but, you know, Raven was the one that was on the on the hip tip of that. And then, um, you know, he had moved. And I just kept it kept it going and kept trying to grow it every year. Uh, but that was an awesome event. And we had a lot of fun back in the days. Although Euphoria's favorite part is probably when the 320-pound uh, battle bot went loose into the crowd because he, for some reason, even mentioned that in his recent Medium post on my, on my keynote. Well, and that's, I'm sure, a great story for another day. I do want to talk a little bit about, because you did start at Apple, um, you also, I think, spent some time at IBM, if I'm not mistaken. So you really started almost like at the biggest end of the spectrum. And then you went the startup route in Chaotic Moon. Again, I remember talking to you. We bumped into each other, I think, three or four times on a plane, you know, going to New York and, you know, caught up a little bit on what was going on there. But talk a little bit about that journey going from the big enterprise to doing something on your own. You know, I, I, I think it was helpful. I think there's several paths people follow. And, of course, everyone is different and every situation is different. But a lot of times you'll see people who start off at a smaller company or startups doing startups and then that's all they do. And some of those are successful and some of those aren't, but they kind of get in that startup uh, groove, if you will. Um, in my case, I started at the larger companies and then went to a startup and it gave me an appreciation for the larger companies, an appreciation for the infrastructure they have, appreciation for the process they have, things like that. I think it actually bolstered my ability to create companies. Um, the first startup I joined, uh, you know, I was technically a co-founder, um, but it was uh, the wrong crew. One of the guys and I are still really great friends, but it was a disaster, right? Um, you know, and I kept sitting there wondering, you know, I'd left IBM for this startup, and I was like, man, I really wish I hadn't left IBM. Because you, you learn, you know, um, back in the open source days, you mentioned early open source days, people used to say, oh, open office is going to destroy Microsoft Office. And I was like, right, guys, but if they stopped collecting revenue and just gave it away for free. It would be years and years and years before the first layoff. It's like these large companies have a presence, they have inertia, they have a channel. You know, in the case of the IBM, the blue channel, I mean, I regretted leaving. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I wish I had a blue channel. Because I could throw anything down a, and I could make $20 million in anything. Whereas at, when you're at a startup and you have no channel, you have no distribution mechanism for your product. Um, back in the early days when I did that, even you know in the 2000s, you still didn't have what uh, people have today when you can kind of go onto some of these services and set it up. And you know, oh, my mailing list taken care of, my this is that. I mean, we're still setting up listserv and, and doing things like that. It was really hard to build a channel for your, uh, for your product. So let's talk a little bit about you know, what it's like to do a startup now, because it's, I'm laughing. I worked at Fidelity Investments for nine years and then do, did a couple of startups myself. I was not one of the co-founders, but on the exec team. One of the things that strikes me today is just how much easier it is, you know, with cloud, with, you know, a lot of the <clears throat> code that already exists out there, all of the marketing services, you know, 
let's go back to, I think you started Chaotic Moon, what was that, seven years ago? 2010, or? yeah. 10, okay, it's a pretty good guess on my part, I guess. We, we launched it South by 2010, That's right, actually. that's right. So, you know, even then it was not horrible. It was not like in the 90s, but, you know, what has it been like? It, it was still it was still bad, right? Like, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. It's like some of the people I worked with back in, in, in the very early days, if you're doing a startup in the, in the 90s or whatever, you're building out everything by yourself. Even in, um, you know, I'd say like 2004, Mike Irwin and I did Symbiote, there was still a lot of stuff. You know, you didn't have a GitHub um, you didn't have a lot of these things, right? So if you live through the, as a developer, from CVS to Subversion, from Subversion to GitHub, et cetera, et cetera, then you've seen the evolution of these tools. Same thing with mailing lists, same things with building a website. There was no WP Engine, right? There was no, there was no magic sauce that you're like, oh, click, click, you know, Squarespace, I now have a business website. Um, and so it was a lot more work, right? Uh, it, it was a lot harder um, for some of the things now that it's like you and I could start a company probably in this room during this podcast, we could go to WP engine or square pay space or any of these things that, that people use nowadays for a website. Boom. We have a website. We go to Envato or somewhere. We download some stock art. There's our customers. Like we could literally build a company in this room during this podcast. Right. And, 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 and go out and, 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 and try to raise money, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all of those things that are the fundamental basic building blocks of, you know, building a pitch deck, building this, they're all so much easier today. And there's so much more information out there today and so much more experience. But it's not just that. Raising money has changed too, right? The recent SEC stuff, right? Crowdfunding and, you know, I mean, good Lord, wouldn't you have loved to have Kickstarter with some of the ideas that we've had, you know, when it was like 2000 or 2001? I would have loved to have Kickstarter. I would love to have, uh, you know, any of those uh, kind of systems that were that were crowdfunded. Yeah, it was funny. I was um, at a taping the other day for a show called Meet the Drapers. It's Jesse and Tim Draper. I think a lot of people know Tim. More people are learning about Jesse, who's the daughter. Uh, she did Silicon Valley Girl as a podcast, but also an actress and runs her own VC firm called Halogen, which invests in women-led uh, and founded firms. Uh, but they were there, and they were actually bringing entrepreneurs onto the show, sort of like Shark Tank, and asking them to pitch, and then asking the crowd to fund these people. So you're right. It's just there's so many different ways to raise capital now that didn't exist, you know, five or ten years ago. Yeah, the whole the whole thing is easier in general. So let's bring us up to current date, because um, I do want to. There's probably hours that we could talk about Chaotic Moon and and Honest Dollar, but. You are giving a talk at South by Southwest in 2018, which is in March, by the way. Um, I don't know if they've identified a day that you've landed on yet. I think that comes we later. We haven't announced a day yet. Okay. But um, this is related to some stuff that you're doing with quantum computing. And so I think there are two books that are coming out. I can mention the titles. Yes? Yes. Okay. It's written on the board. So I'm assuming if it's written on the board, it's legal. Uh, Endless Impossibilities. Correct. And then Quantum Computing for Babies, which as a guy that's written a dummies book, it makes me laugh because it really is <laughs> taking it to a whole I've, nother level. I've, I've, I've done, you know, as you know, you and I have both written some books. Mine have been primarily coding books, right? Like the internet guide to shockwave back in the day before there was flash and things like that. They were like 
coding in this scripting language or that scripting language. This will be my first trade book. Endless Impossibility is super important to me. Um, I've been watching quantum computing for about five years. I've been actively kind of investing and, 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 and investing time and money in the space for about three, about the last year and a half. I've been very, very just focused. I've had that, that kind of entrepreneurial sense telling me this is coming down the, the, the path, just like with the iPhone, just like with the app economy. Right. So this is like, this is going to happen. Um, I think can, that can you just tell people, cause there are a variety of people that listen to this show. What is quantum computing for the for the baby? So that's so that's great. <laughs> so well, well, that may be too simple for for your listeners, but but let's talk about that for a second. So quantum computing basically is a new type of building a compute way of building a computer. So think of it this way: right now we have classical compute architectures. So I just ordered a new uh, Google Pixel two. That phone has a Snapdragon processor in it. The Snapdragon processor has like I'm thirty uh, like three billion transistors. And where something used to be 10 years ago at like 30 microns, now it's at like seven or five. Um, I'm not really sure on that processor, but things are getting incredibly small. And as things physically get that small, then we run into a situation where quantum mechanics comes into play. So if you think of a bit how a bit works, we either impede a flow and say it's a zero or we let it through and it's a one. You could literally have a situation where those transistors are so small, quantum tunneling comes into effect, and we couldn't impede something. A particle could just go to one side of the gate and then appear on the other. And when that happens, computing as we know it kind of sort of breaks down. Now, there's all manner of science and technology to, to get us past that with the way that we do things in silicon. But um, years and years ago, IBM, for example, has been working on this for over 30 years. Uh, a bunch of scientists and a bunch of physicists started thinking about what if we calculated on actual photons, right? And so basically quantum computers allow you to do quantum mechanical things using quantum mechanics. So use superposition, for example. The name of my blog is taken from the superposition of what's called a quantum bit. So it has spin, so it has spin up and it has spin down. So spin up would be a one, spin down would be a zero, but it can be in any of those states uh, in the same at the same time in theory now there's a bunch of debate on this a lot of it gets into theoretical physics but the basic concept is that we can watch a quantum computer work uh, a, a, a classical computer work we can't watch a quantum computer work we can only see the results of its work so um, the calculations uh, you know and the, the, the power to calculate grows exponentially for example if we have a bit and we add a bit uh, you know, we've got two bits. If we have a, a, a bit and a quantum bit, as we add quantum bits, uh, we go two to the n uh, and of growth of, of what we can calculate, right? So this superposition comes into play. Uh, things like quantum entanglement come into play, where if we measure a bit, we can know the state of another uh, qubit uh, by default, right? Einstein called it spooky at a distance. So this is a whole new area of getting into computing. It's not going to make cat videos on the internet faster. It's not going to, you know, help you if you're a big Pornhub user, but it will absolutely work with things that have large, large data sets. So search in a database of phone numbers, uh, instead of going line by line really fast like a computer does, you would only need the square root of the number of entries in that database. So tell us a little bit about, obviously what you just said was brilliant and makes my head hurt a little bit. Um, you're gonna give a keynote on this and obviously when you're talking to that many people, there will be a lot of really smart folks in the audience as well, but um, there's a bigger theme I'm, I'm guessing that you're talking about and obviously a bigger theme in the book and talking about, I think, these endless impossibilities. So maybe we can touch on what some of those endless impossibilities are at a macro level. Sure. You know, uh, you know, the, the talk's going to be great to kind of foreshadow. I'm going to get everybody up on 
kind of the quick state in history, but I'm going to go through some of these things that, that we used to think were impossible. Th- think of things like uh, CRISPR, right? And, and gene editing and things that like 40 years ago, someone would have thought you were insane, right? The same thing is happening with quantum computing. There are things that they're going to be able to do that just sound so far-fetched and so sci-fi. They're actually becoming not science fiction, but science fact. And so when you look at it, you're talking about, um, I mean, geez, uh, finding cures for diseases, folding proteins, uh, drug discovery, right? Uh, Lockheed Martin's using a, a D-wave quantum computing a quantum computer to do uh, air safety. Um, there's a million things. So they think of all the things that, that have these giant, giant data sets. And I can't say yet, but I'm going to be announcing a project at South by that is what I plan to use quantum computing for. So think of me less, you know, I'm not uh, professing to be a, a quantum computing expert. Uh, I am certainly not a physicist, uh, but I'm a fairly smart guy and I've been getting my head wrapped around it. And it's kind of funny because there's a lot of areas where people don't agree. For example, there's there's two types of quantum computers right now. There's a quantum annealer, right? And then there's a circuit gate model, and they're very different. And those communities are two different communities. And some of the people cross both of them, some of them don't. And, um, you know, if this is a an emerging space, um, errors will be made on many people's parts, probably mine. Uh, hopefully I won't make the majority of them uh, as this space develops. Uh, but it has more potential to affect humanity in a positive way than I think any technology in the in the past hundred years. Well, that's amazing. And we, um, our agency works actually with folks like CRISPR and others. And so we're seeing some of this unfold, certainly other genomics clients. Um, and I think, you know, just bringing this, the uh, ability to process ridiculous amounts of data at ridiculous speeds and to have it in, you know, on your phone or small computer versus, you know, reams of, uh, you know, big databases and things like that. So looking forward to, to hearing that talk and hearing more about it. I do want to be respectful of time. So we'll ask you a couple of the final questions that we try to ask along a lot of the guests. So one is, I always like to know who's influencing the influencer. And that could be sort of uh, over time or, you know, is there someone recently, given the fact that you've lived in a bunch of different worlds all underpinned with technology i'm sure there are some interesting answers to that yeah i mean obviously you know all of the big names everybody knows but um you know right now uh it's schrodinger it's einstein it's all of these uh you know notable physicists who were talking about things that i'm now getting into years and years and years ago, the, the, the visionaries of that space and kind of catching up on that physics education and moving forward. And Einstein, I think, is inspirational in general for a lot of reasons. So that's been a very big inspiration. Although I did watch Genius, and I will say about episode four, pretty much he's the villain in the show. So it's a little, that, was a little, that was a little disappointing. But, um, you know, I'll also mention uh, somebody who I am working with uh, now, which is Chris Ferry. So Chris Ferry did a series of books uh, called, um, he did Quantum Entanglement for Babies, uh, Quantum Optics for Babies. Uh, he did an amazing parody book called The Good Night Lab. Uh, super cool Australian physicist. And somebody put these books on my Facebook page. I went, I was like, I got to get these for my new, new kids. I got them for my kids. And, uh, and then I loved him so much. I sent him an email. I was like, this is great. And that's actually how quantum computing for babies came out. He's like, well, we should do one on this topic that you're doing. Um, and the reason I named him is when somebody asked me a year from now, what was the number one, uh, hardest thing I've done in coming into the quantum computing space? 
not organizing community, not learning about the physics, not anything. The absolute hardest thing to date, and I think will probably always be the hardest thing, was co-authoring quantum computing for babies. Because there's, it starts with, this is a ball, and it ends with, now you know quantum computing. And there's about 25 pages. And I was like, I'm going to knock this out with a rum and coke, go watch some Rick and Morty, make my, you know, run my wife a tub. And uh, about two weeks later, I was like, on the page it said, this is a ball. <laughs> so that's probably, so it was inspirational because you see things like that and you laugh, it's cute. You know, Chris wrote Quantum Entanglement for Babies. You're like, oh, that's adorable. Um, but then you think about like, okay, let me take Quantum Entanglement and explain it to babies and make it a, a, a literally a, a book for, you know, toddlers and pre-toddlers is incredibly, incredibly difficult. So it's a very humbling and inspirational to go through that process. Yeah, I mean, I, just as someone that has written a book with a co-author, it's hard enough to do just that. And then to take an incredibly complex topic, I like to make the analogy, it's like explaining it to your grandparents, right? Uh, and I have three kids, and so like the other day, we were ta I, I'm trying to explain to my 10-year-old what um, nuclear weapons are and how they work. And when you think about it, you really have to dig deep into the, uh, the science and, and history book. Uh, I do want to get to our final, more fun question, certainly um, apropos given the fact that both you and I were at the Austin City Limits Musical Festival this past weekend. Um, one is, I want to start with, uh, you have an opportunity to have one album, you're on a desert island, or deserted island rather, sorry, and forget about the where the electricity comes from or how it gets generated. Think about uh, you know the Gilligan's Island, I guess, you have a professor pedaling the bike and the coconuts. Uh, what would that album be and why? So, so that's a tough choice. I love all kind of music. I love classical, I love jazz, I love rap, I love rock, I love everything, um, except for maybe some pop music. Um, but, uh, I would have to say, especially after seeing them live in concert, hands down, it'd be run the jewels three. Um, they were amazing. Uh, they were amazingly humble, uh, as artists and I love their music specifically. I love, uh, chase me from the baby driver soundtrack. Uh, so it's probably the album I would go with. Well, and it is apropos because they did just play. And I think one of the things both you and I were noting in our elevator ride up is the fact that the two front men uh, were talking to the crowd and they had a message of respect and tolerance and they were very cool about it, right? But they were saying, one, if there's anyone in the crowd, you may be having a great time, but if you're doing something to someone else, particularly the women, I'm going to come down there and I'm going to punch you in the face. There may have been an expletive <laughs> added they're, to they're, it. They were pretty awesome. I thought the most impressive thing was they, they, there were people getting crushed at the front as everybody pushed up. And, uh, and he, they stopped and they asked everybody to take a step back. And it was amazing to see these thousands and thousands of people all take one step back at the same time. And then he did it again and take another step back and not move immediately back up, which was, that, that was quite a feat, I think. Yeah. And I will say, and maybe you agree or disagree, they were great. This was a year where a lot of times I come to ACL, I've been doing this for, I don't know, nine years there's always four or five artists that are big name artists that I want to see. This year to me was more of a year of discovery. There's certainly bands like Run the Jewels and Portugal the Man and Danny Brown, ASAP Ferg that I was excited to see. Chili Peppers. Chili Peppers, you know, I've seen them several times though. Doesn't and matter. so no, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> but they were actually the they, least of my concerns this year. They were they were yeah, they were they were up high on my list only because um, you know, as bands get 
long in the tooth, so to speak. You know, you wonder like, are they going to play anymore? Are they going to tour? Uh, my wife had never seen them live and it, it's definitely an experience. They were, and that's the thing is like, for me, this was the year that all the bands at ACL were bands for the most part that love what they're doing. They're, they have respect for the audience. They know the audience are paying the bills. They know the audience are, is what made them get to where they're at. Chili Peppers said that. Ice Cube said that. You know, Run the Jewels said that. I mean, these are, these, these were like just amazing entertainers that had a relationship, not a one-to-many relationship, but a one-to-one relationship with the audience, right? That's what they built. And I just, that was, that was inspirational to see that. Um, but, you know, like I said, my wife had never seen Chili Peppers and they, and they immediately didn't disappoint. She was like, you know, curious as to, you know, I mean, she likes them and all, but it's like, you know, there's a lot of bands I like, I don't know, I want to see live, but the moment they step out on stage and start playing, you're, you're there, right? You're in that moment with them. Yeah. They're amazing entertainers. And it is funny because for anyone that doesn't know them that well, Anthony Kiedis is their front man and he certainly does his share of talking, but Flea, who's their bassist, who's arguably one of the best bassists in the history of music has taken on that role of being more the guy that interacts with the audience. And he is a very funny guy. Uh, if you haven't ever watched it, the carpool karaoke with uh, James, what's his last name? Or the big Lebowski. Yeah. Or the big Lebowski. Exactly. Good, good uh, historical film reference. Anyway, um, Worley, it's been a pleasure sitting down with you today. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O group, host of the what to know podcast show. Uh, I've just spent, you know, 25 or 30 minutes with, an amazing guy, a good friend. He is the chair of the IEEE Quantum Computing Standards Workshop. He's blogging at superposition.com. He's actually produced films. He's written books. He's started companies. Um, his new book, Endless Impossibilities, and then Quantum Computer Computing for Babies, uh, coming out, I'm guessing, sometime in the next few months. So um, both of those books, one will be released, Endless Impossibilities will be released at South By. So it'll be in the bookstore there. That's the plan. And uh, Quantum Computing for Babies uh, will be available sometime around that uh, same time frame. Great. So keep your eyes open around March, maybe late February. Uh, thank you again for taking the time to do this. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Want more episodes of the What to Know podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Check them out on iTunes, the podcast app, and the podcast page at w2ogroup.com backslash what to know.